Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome to Insight LA Long Beach Sunday Sit. Uh, my name is Casey, and we're going to be talking today the titles Into the Depths, so Into the Depths of Practice, and uh, which is entirely misleading, actually, <laughs> um, now that I got into it a little bit. Um, so thank you all for coming. So last night we had our third annual holiday potluck, and... Thank you very much, Adrian and Tom, for hosting. It's just so precious uh, to come together as community. And um, there may or may not have been a little bit of dancing afterward. <laughs> Posted on Facebook, evidence. Um, yeah. They are doing some mindful dance. <laughs> I just think it's a dance up at inside LA. We're doing some meditation and then dancing. I haven't been up there yet, but love to do that. It's super fun. So, um, yeah, so it was great. <clears throat> so, always we could say during this time, maybe more than ever, it's fantastic to find a place of refuge within ourselves, and that's always the case. Um, it may or may not be a little bit more turbulent now with um, the status of um, what's happening in the world today, what's happening in Syria and our own country and, and whatnot. It's really, really important to know that we have that place of refuge to come back to and that it's, it's right here, right now. <clears throat> And so I thought we'd talk a little bit about the depths of practice and the fruits of the practice. And then, you know, soon realizing to do that, like, let's just go back to the beginning. Because there's really no depth to practice. It's just the continuation of something so incredibly simple and so incredibly close and sustaining that, right? So, a great start to the practice, the very beginning and the very end, is sila, or ethics, right? <clears throat> so I like that Dalai Lama, he's often quoted as saying, my religion is simple, my religion is, is kindness. My religion is simple, my religion is kindness. And, you know, I think the Dalai Lama is not trying to make like a cute little meme or like a Instagram post, you know, quote, like that sounds good, you know, sounds nice, kindness. Yet what's the depth of that? If that's really true, what's the depth of kindness as a practice? Well, we know, for one, we can't meditate without ethics, right? We know that. 
We cannot sit down after a day of being angry and dishonest and then go into a deep meditative absorption <laughs> for our evening practice. Yeah? We can't. We can't. <laughs> Maybe some people can. I don't know if that would be a true practice, but if you can, there might be some other issues. <laughs> some other things to look at. Yet, as we know with the interplay with wisdom and compassion, that the more compassion we have, the more the false self falls away, more before, the more that this division between self and other, the so-called division between self and other, drops away. And the more we could bask in the wisdom of true self, right? That just blends together, yeah? And so we start there, and we end there. And then once we get the insight of wisdom, then this bodhicitta, this wishing to be there for the benefit of all beings, to reach enlightenment for the benefit of, of all beings, is automatically present with wisdom mind. And so we spoke about this... I believe, last month. So the Buddha taught 84,000 teachings. But what did he really teach? What's the one thing that he taught? He only taught one thing. Everything else is a support. There's 84,000 teachings in support of one teaching. What was that? Exactly. That there's an end. But what is the end of suffering? No, non suffering. Non what? Waking up. The confidence over there is. <laughs> did you say non self? Mm-hmm. How did we get to non self? Mindfulness. Mindfulness is a tool to, for this. What's that? It's another word for letting go. Love. Attachment. I'm looking for one specific Dharma word here. <laughs> he was really close. He said, let it go. Surrender. Surrender. Yeah, that's it. So he taught non-clinging. Non-attachment, non-clinging. Right? Third noble truth. This is the way out, yeah? Non-clinging. So all the teachings are in support of non-clinging. So let's just break down, break it down really simply, right? So what is the definition of mindfulness? One of the, one of the beautiful, most beautiful ways for non-clinging. What's like a working definition? Being present. Being present. Paying attention moment to moment to the present moment. I'm using the John Kabat-Zinn one because I just like it. Oh, it's really simple. Being aware. Yeah, being non-judgment. present. What's that? Non-judgment. That's right. So his is impartial awareness, non-judgmental awareness. At least say compassionate non-judgmental aware, compassionate non-judgmental awareness, as compassion just being a flavor in which we meet things, like very light flavor, right? Nothing even really explicit. So paying attention to the present moment, on purpose, non-judgmentally. Paying attention. 
can't do anything without paying attention. We can't practice loving kindness without paying attention. We can't practice self-compassion without paying attention. So paying attention to what? The present moment. And we're doing so with a certain flavor, which is this on purpose. So if there's a loud noise outside, we'd all turn, right? That's not necessarily on purpose, right? It's just something innate. So paying attention to the present moment on purpose. And then the kicker is this non-clinging, non-judgment, non-judgmentally. Letting everything in, letting everything out. Nothing's good, nothing's bad, no attachment, no aversion, no acceptance, no rejection. Just being with what is as it is. No mental overlay, nothing. Bare, naked awareness, just that. So that's like external phenomena. And then what's our internal phenomena? So our entire external phenomena is processed in just three different ways. And what are those ways? So that's, that's something a little bit different. It's how, what, what, what's that? What is the question? <laughs> we, we process all external phenomena inwardly, just three different ways. So we say, I'm happy today, which means you have what? Emotions. Emotions. Oh, thoughts. thoughts. Sense. Senses. Which senses are part of what? Physical body. Body. That's it. So I'm totally lost. What is it? I'm going to draw it out, actually. So we call this triangle of awareness. Right, so when we're looking at clean mind, so we have thoughts. So somebody cuts you off in traffic. So that's an external happening. Then how do you process it? I forgot how to write today. So thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So there's an external happening, yeah? Mm-hmm. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. So you could feel an emotion like anger. Mm-hmm. Anger is arising, yeah? You feel the body tense up. And then you have thoughts. I can't believe they did that, right? Who knows what's first? Yeah, sometimes it could be a thought that triggers an emotion, sometimes a bigger, uh, a bigger, (laughs) an emotion triggers a thought, an emotion, it doesn't really matter. And they all work together really quickly, yeah? Mm -hmm. We notice that they just start rocking and rolling. (laughs) So they move sometimes very quickly. So what is in the middle of this triangle? Space. Space. <laughs> 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 got an, got an stereo. <laughs> so Linda said it over there. Awareness. Yeah? <clears throat> so usually there's no awareness. So we just automatically clamor to... Thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So you say, how are you doing today? And someone says, oh, I'm not doing well today. 
It means that we have thoughts that are unpleasant or an emotion that's unpleasant, body sensations that are unpleasant. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm happy today. That means that we have thoughts that are happy today, right? Mm -hmm. We have emotions that are pleasant, body sensations that are pleasant. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this is the wave of samsara, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're just moving and flowing with them, there's no control. The mind says, hey, we're unhappy today. And we say, oh, okay, mind, where do you want me to go today? Oh, we're going to go into unhappiness today. Oh, thank you very much. We're going to go over here today. Right. So without awareness, we just move. Yeah. So there's the knower and what is being known. This is the non-clinging. Usually we stay with what is known. And we hop onto what is known and we just ride that wave. Non-clinging is moving into the knower of what is to be known, right? So non-clinging is resting in that awareness, watching the thoughts arise from where? They're your thoughts, come on. Where do your thoughts come from? Brain. Exactly where do they come from? Oh, come on. Really? No one knows where their thoughts come from? I could point... So the thoughts run our lives, but we can't figure out where they come from. Say, where's the bowl? Everyone can say where the bowl is. So at what point did they become your thoughts? When you repeat them? Who repeats them? Myself? The mind. Yourself? Where's the self that repeats them? Crickets. No words. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to note this this I. It's very good. Yeah? Because we'll say my my thoughts that come from nowhere. And at some certain point, so this is clinging, yeah? At some, this some certain point, this magical point in time, mine. So we say my thoughts, but who, who is the I that owns the thoughts? We say my body. Who is the I that owns the body? Self. Yeah, self with a capital S, yeah. So looking in with the awareness. This is really important because this is clinging. So the clinging comes with the attachment, right, of self. When we self-identify with them, mm-hmm. right, and we actually can put almost a, almost a permanent label of self onto that, which is impermanent. Mm-hmm. You know, our body changes. You say, "Oh, this isn't me. <laughs> it never was you, honey." <laughs> yeah. Go for our, we're an athlete and it gets take, our athleteness gets taken away. You know, well, it never was us. Yes? So, awareness, look that which is looking. So, that which is looking at sadness is not sadness. That which is looking at happiness is not, is not happiness. Yeah? But the mind itself is naturally peaceful, it's naturally at ease, and it's beyond the up and down. We'll just stick with this for a moment, though. I want to... 
try one more thing. And those of you that done, have done some of the meditation classes with this will recognize this one. So, we start out with a stressor. Right? So this is a stressor. It's not just a dot on a whiteboard. This is something like I lost my job. It's, a, it's something that's very real. Yeah? And so then very quickly, the mind does something it's really, really good at. It's called catastrophizing. Does your mind ever do this? It's brilliant. Yeah? So I lost my job. And all of a sudden, it means the world's going to end. I'm not going to be able to pay rent. And I'm going to lose my house. All these things happen so quickly, yeah? And so in a very short amount of time, instead of just emotionally having to hold what's real, we're holding all of this. You know how fast that happens, yeah? It happens so fast. Thoughts arise, and we follow the thought. Now, that thought, where is that thought going? Let's say the thought, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my job. It would just arise and then fall away. Absolutely. It would come and go. Right. Always on the way out. Right? It's like somebody walking by. I like to say, somebody's walking, walking by. They have a good little clip, and they're going where they're going. And as they pass you, you say, I don't like you. <laughs> you out of nowhere. <laughs> and then, you know, there's prob- probably going to be some engagement after that. At some point. Right? At, at the very least, they'll probably stop for a little while. Right? So it's like a thought. A thought is coming. Pure, innocent little thought. Like, you might lose your job. Pure, innocent little thought. Going by. And you say, I don't like you. And it says, what? (laughs) And there's engagement. An unenhanced emotion lasts 90 seconds. An unenhanced emotion lasts 90 seconds. Right? Unenhanced. Without the grasping. (coughs) Lasts 90 seconds. Yet if we hold on to something, right, it gets heavier and heavier. You've seen the thing where if I pick this up and set it down, No problem. Now, if I pick this up and I hold it for 10 minutes, how heavy is it going to feel? It'll feel pretty heavy. So if I hold on to this for two days, for one year, for a decade, it's the same weight, but it gets heavier. So we say, how heavy, how heavy are your thoughts? 
some very light, fluffy. You <laughs> can blow them away. <laughs> With the magic of awareness, you look and they just flee away, right? You're meditating, and the thought comes, oh, I have to call that person back. I have to email that person back. It's a light little thought. <laughs> Flies away. No problem. Those ones that we engage with, that we have grasping mind, and we ruminate on, and we rehearse, rehash, those ones, Mm -hmm. heavy. Yeah, snuff out the flame of awareness, right? Our awareness can burn up many things, but when they get heavy, it burns up. We cannot burn it up. It's like a log. Flame of awareness gone, yeah? but always on the way out. So in the space between stimulus and response, like the great Viktor Frankl quote, yeah? This is, the, this is a space of mindfulness. Right here, yeah? So that space between the stimulus and the catastrophizing mind, this is our power to choose, our proper response, instead of habitual patterning habitual reaction, right? But it's very uncomfortable because to do that, there's something familiar about crazy monkey mind because it's distracting. And we love distraction. When the going gets tough, the tough get distracted, right? (laughs) We love that. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to move in. As Pim and Trojan said, lean into the sharp points. So this is only the hardest thing in the world. It's very uncomfortable, right? Because what we're asking ourselves to do is actually lean in to that which we usually move away from. But it's okay. Now we have the tool because we have something called love and compassion. We also have awareness. And with practice, when we marinate long enough in awareness, we know that we are not our thoughts and emotions. And it becomes very less scary. Because it can be scary to rest, or to, I should say, identify with our thoughts and emotions. Right? We become fearful, right? So fear is an emotion arising. Awareness is like space. Space could hold a trillion stars. So fear arising is like, can you imagine one little planet coming up? One little planet in space thinking, oh, I'm just a planet. Imagine that. So awareness, where does your awareness begin and end? How big is your awareness? That which is not attached to thought, emotion, and body sensation. So we are this God-self, this infinite potentiality. And we become finite so quickly. I am. And then we attach. We can stop with the I am. I am. I am that I am. I am. I am male. I am female. I am that. I am thatness. I am that. Yet when we move down to, like, I am thought, like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, it's very, very sad to think 
that today someone will take their life because they believe the thought. But we're losing moments. Like we die in a way and we're asleep. We're believing thoughts, caught up in thoughts, yeah? And so this is really important, the freedom to choose. The freedom to choose something different is extremely important, right? Very, very important. This is my little meditator. <laughs> Meditating away. Beautiful. So this is it. This is the whole practice. This is non-clinging. So let's just take thoughts. Thoughts come. Thoughts are coming through our minds like a thought train. Are they really right here? No, they're not. But I'm just drawing it. Because we don't know where they are. We haven't figured that out yet. So let's say that we're meditating on the sensation of the breath moving through the abdomen, a common anchor for crazy monkey mind. And we notice with mindfulness that we're lost in thought. This happens in about five to ten seconds. So like in the beginning, usually five to ten seconds. So we notice with mindfulness, which is the vigilance of the mind, mindfulness is always asking the question, where am I? That's mindfulness. Where am I? And mindfulness notice, notices, oh, we're down here. We're down the river, down the stream of thoughts. And then this mindfulness, no problem, right? We go back and we hang out there. We hang out there for another 10 seconds. <laughs> 20 seconds yeah <clears throat> and then we notice oh I'm down the river of thoughts again yeah we think no problem we bring the mind back the very moment we release this thought the Tibetans will say liberation you liberate a thought the very moment we liberate a thought we're a Buddha in that very moment, everybody, all beings, feel it. All beings on some level. Karchim Rinpoche likes to say, all beings. Ants feel it. You liberate a thought, the ant will feel it. You're a Buddha, you're a Christ, you're a Krishna. You're infinite potentiality, right? You're free. What am I without that thought? When we're really suffering, we're free. We're free. This small, tiny act of non-grasping, non-clinging, that's it. So that the importance of informal meditation, of walking meditation, doing the dishes meditation, listening meditation, coffee meditation, sick meditation... Uh, crazy monkey mind meditation, angry meditation, sorrow meditation. All of those. This short time, many times, drip by drip fills the cup. Every time 
we become mindful, we flex the muscle of mindfulness. Every time we do it on the small little things, then we get used to doing it, and those big things, those logs that come along and can snuff out our flame of awareness can get burnt up. But we can't go to the gym and squat like 400 pounds right away. You go to the gym and you work up to it. You start jogging and you jog a mile. So sometimes we think, oh, my meditation, I mean, we go to it when we're suffering and we're like, why isn't it working? I can't meditate. Of course you can. (laughs) Those are like really heavy emotions, really heavy thoughts. And actually it's probably unwise to even practice in those ways. Yeah, we have to be very, we have to use our wisdom. When we're really going through it, it might be better to call a friend or go for a walk or go exercise before we use like really deep penetrative insight into those things. That's where the rubber meets the road. So mindfulness is pulling the mind away. Concentration is once we land on the object and concentration takes over, right? Concentration holds the mind down on the object, holding the mind down. And then we get pulled away. And so, you know, what, what are the depths? That's the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> one one of them, yeah. So in meditation we drop a stone in the water, yeah. <clears throat> so it's like dropping a stone one breath at a time. We go deeper. So there we are, we're focusing for our ten, twenty seconds. And then the mind thinks something and we come up to the surface. And then the surface is very turbulent, right? Not so calm. It's like high waves and choppy water, all that stuff, yeah? And then we go back down. We spend another three breaths going a little bit deeper. And the deeper we go, the easier it is to become calm and peaceful, yeah? But then we come back up to the surface, and then we go back down, and then we go back <laughs> up. Eventually, and this is why it's fantastic to do longer meditations, right? 45-minute meditations, hour-long meditation, two-day two day retreats, 10-day, three months, one year, three years, Six years, 12 years. <laughs> Lifetime retreat. <clears throat> you know what I did my one-year retreat? That The woman there, she was in lifetime retreat. 
We couldn't figure out exactly somewhere between 13 and 18 years. And she was telling me the story of the time her teacher gave her permission to do lifetime retreat and how ecstatic she was. It was so precious. She She was not a monastic, to believe believe it or not. She was a lay person, which I don't know the difference at that point. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember walking into her... So at that time, she was in closed retreat. Um, and so she couldn't be seen by anybody. So, but we had to do some work on our cabin. So we went in there. And I remember walking into the front room where she did all... She was, she was in this cabin in the mountains. And her front room was where she did all her practice. And then there was a kitchen and stuff like this. So right, right when I walked in, I got very, very sick like immediately. It was so strong. It was, it was like an instantaneous purification and everything got stirred up. It, it hit me like a wall. Like her, just the presence of that room was so incredibly strong. It was almost like I had to walk in and walk out and walk back in and walk back out. Walk in and walk out. And and if you spoke with her, you would think she just started. She was the most, just humility would be like, oh yeah, I can't do the high tantra practices. I just do a little mantra. Yeah, it's amazing. But anyway, so this practice, this continuous, continuous practice of resting in the depths. And so then no longer challenged by mind. The ups and downs of mind, we could rest in the depths down here, yeah? Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking back to the thoughts, you know, these thoughts, let's say we're going to bring our meditator back in here. We have those thoughts. So those thoughts are not all negative thoughts. Those are good thoughts, bad thoughts, all types of thoughts, right? But mind is naturally peaceful and, con- and, and content without any conjuring, no, any cultivating. So it's not like we need to just practice positive thinking. We already are what we're seeking. We don't need to do anything. Like Paula, be Paula. Be Paula. So we say, where's enlightenment? You are enlightenment. (laughs) But we think we actually have to grasp onto what we're not. We actually move away from self, out of self, every moment. Like Autumn Dupton says, like the universe has a big job to do. Every moment, what did I say, the universe? Mm -hmm. Okay, I messed up. (laughs) The mind has a big job to do. Every moment it creates the universe. Every moment, we create self and other. With every moment. Big job to do. <clears throat> so we actually jump out of ourself every moment. This grasping mind is why we sleep at night. Notice these sages, they don't sleep. Luminium don't sleep. Yeah? It actually takes effort to grasp. So we actually takes effort in the beginning to not grasp. Just like it takes effort not to eat 
ice cream at night. You notice how, how much effort it takes not to do? A lot of the things in life, I think like diets, one of them, addiction is another one. It takes a lot of effort not to do. Right? Non-doing. So we say it takes a lot of effort to like dig a ditch and to go run and exercise. But also, a lot of the things, it's just like, just don't do that. <laughs> so non-doing. So we can be, can be habituated to non-doing. So non-grasping mind. Noticing thought arising. Notice thought abiding. Noticing thought drifting away. No problem. And then when we not, when we move into non-grasping mind for long enough, we settle into true nature. Mm-hmm. Beyond grasping, non-grasping. So I want to read a couple, a couple quotes here. This is from um, Ajahn Chah, a great Theravada master. Actually, there's nothing much to this mind. It's simply radiant in and of itself. It's naturally peaceful. Why the mind doesn't feel peaceful right now is because, because it gets lost in its own moods. There's nothing to mind itself. It simply abides in its natural state. That's all. That sometimes the mind feels peaceful and other times not peaceful is because it has been tricked by these moods. The untrained mind lacks wisdom. <coughs> it's foolish. Moods come and trick it into feeling pleasure one minute and suffering the next. Happiness than sadness. But the natural state of, person, of a person's mind isn't one of happiness or sadness. This experience of happiness and sadness is not the actual mind itself, but just these moods that have tricked it. The mind gets lost, carried away by these moods with no idea what's happening. And as a result, we experience pleasure and pain accordingly because the mind has not been trained yet. It still isn't very clever And we go on thinking that it's our mind which is suffering or our mind which is happy. Mental states, we should release them. When we hear sounds, let them go. When the the bodily feelings arise, let go of the like or dislike that follow. Let them go back to their birthplace. The same for mental states. All these things, just let them go on their way. This is knowing. Whether it's happiness or unhappiness, it's all the same. This is called meditation. When the mind indulges in these things, we say that it clings to or takes that happiness and unhappiness to be worthy of holding. That clinging is an action of the mind. That happiness or unhappiness is a feeling. When we say the Buddha told us to separate the mind from feeling, he didn't literally mean to throw them to different places. He meant that the mind must know happiness and know unhappiness. When sitting in samadhi, for example, the peace fills the mind, then happiness comes, but it doesn't reach us. Unhappiness comes, but doesn't reach us. This is to separate the feeling from the mind. We can compare it to oil and water in a bottle. They don't combine. 
Even if you try to mix them, the oil remains oil and the water remains water because they are of different density. But actually, we practice in order to let go of both right and wrong. In the end, we just throw everything out. If it's right, throw it out. Wrong, throw it out. Usually, if it's right, we cling to rightness. If it's wrong, we cling to it being wrong. And then arguments follow. The Dharma is the place where there's nothing. Nothing at all. And that might sound confusing, right? Because we're like, well, we want right. What's right? we are what's right we don't need to cultivate so this clinging to what's right is clinging to a false right it's clinging to a right that could be wronged does that make sense? Mm -hmm. like we have a good friend we have a wonderful friend so we cling to that friend yeah? and then that friend turns out to be a not so good friend And that friend becomes an enemy. Have you heard of that before? You ever heard of friends becoming enemies before? You ever heard of like partners separating before? Like love? You see, so we could grasp onto that. But what we're grasping at, in its nature, is not permanently happy. There's no thing that has innate happiness in it. So there's no suitcase of happiness, right? There's no person that innately from its own side is just happiness arising and they've been put on this earth just for our happiness. Like, thank you, you make me happy. When you walk in the room, unbelievable, I'm happy. That there's no such thing. There's our clinging to that thing, our imputation to that thing that makes, oh, we think they make me happy. And that's impermanent. So what we're saying is is that beyond that type of up and down, there's a permanent love, contentment, peacefulness, this natural state of radiant mind. The mind is naturally. So we don't need to grasp. Or we don't need to have aversion. We think we do, like, Okay, I'm going to grasp the good, I'm going to leave the bad. Right? That's fine. You know, we can cultivate, like we cultivate loving kindness, right? The Buddha said, you know, sit down and you need to practice loving kindness. So we practice loving kindness until we realize that we are loving kindness. Yeah? We do nurture, cultivate ethics and a peaceful mind and the positive thoughts. Yes, absolutely, on a relative level. And then also, too, that's because it can put us into a state. It builds a foundation to let that go. Like in meditation, when you work with non-clinging, like when we're meditating, we, we're practicing, right? Okay, mind's, mind's drifting off, and we're pulling it back, mind's drifting off. And then you notice, you're just calm. Stop meditating. Get rid of the meditation. Get rid of the technique. Most of all, get rid of the meditator. Do non-meditation meditation. Just throw it out. Just be. And knowing that, okay, we can be. Just as we are. No problem.
There's another one from Mingyu Rinpoche. Realize that whatever arises is the, is the display of the Dharmakaya, the primordial nature, unbroken simplicity. Without clinging, whatever arises is naturally freed. In the, equal, in the great equal taste, without rejecting or accepting, continue on. I'm going to read that one again. The Dharmakaya is the infinite potentiality state. Realize that whatever arises is the display of the Dharmakaya. So emptiness, it's all perfectly arising. The primordial nature, unbroken simplicity. Without clinging, whatever arises is naturally freed. In the great equal taste, without rejecting or accepting, continue on. It's also a practice called one taste. Well, one taste is meaning nothing is good or bad. It's one taste. Right? Everything that arises, it's not good, not bad. Perfect as it is. Yeah. Sometimes the monks and nuns, you know, take this literally. It's a common practice where most of the centers and you know, monastic facilities, it's just a big buffet. Maybe, you know, many of you gone to retreats and whatnot, but you see a big buffet. And so a lot of times the monks and nuns will go through and they just have one bowl and they just put everything in to one bowl. So it would be the rice and beans and the cookie and <laughs> the lasagna and the whatever it might be for the day and they just like and the salad and the salad dressing and they just kind of mush it around and they just start eating. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's one taste. <laughs> that's a good example. Like one taste. Of non-attachment, non-clinging. It's just like, okay, calories <laughs> for the day. Okay, well, I spoke for way too long. <laughs> it's like 11.20 already. Sorry about that. Um, that? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, uh, so we have time for like a couple um, comments or questions or insights. You know, I'm a little confused. If you're just going to, you know, if we just are supposed to accept the way reality is, mm. I mean, there's a lot of evil in this world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. is it just kind of, oh, well, it's evil, we just accept it. That doesn't resonate well. Yeah, thank you very much for bringing that up. <clears throat> so there's two truths, and we're speaking about the, the two truths. And one truth is on a relative level. There's a relative good and bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And a relative level of good and bad is... Um, what's the... Is it Suzuki Roshi quote? Oh gosh, I can't remember it word for word. Nothing is right, nothing is wrong, but what is right is right and wrong is wrong. So we have to move back into our true self and our true nature and to think 
that yeah, on on an ultimate sense, like we're perfect just the way that we are, and there's room to improve. That's a Suzuki Roshi quote. Mm-hmm. So, is to to honor our perfectness, and then also act out of mundane wisdom, right? So it is a very dynamic practice, and yes, we have to use our wisdom mind to to do what's right, and that's why I started out with like ethics. So yes, the practice when we come full circle is that the practice is being kind and doing what's right. But we move from that place of passionate non-attachment. Right? So this place of passionate non-attachment, so we know that everything is interdependent and is coming from a place of perfectness, if we could see that, and yet we have to strive to do what's right anyway. And it's very, it's a paradox. And they say the, the more paradox there is, the closer you're getting to the truth. Which <laughs> it sounds, it's, but it's true. It's just that we move from a place of passion, non-attachment. And I know I use this a lot, but I don't know a better example. But I use the Dalai Lama a lot. So he's just been through it. I mean, his whole country was taken away. And, and people have been murdered in his name. A lot, a lot of them, his 6,000 monasteries, whole lineages of teachings have been completely destroyed. And yet, if you look at him, you'll say, well, that's a happy guy. And yet, is he, is he still doing everything in his power to help his people to do what's right? Absolutely. He is so committed to doing what's right on a relative level. Yet, he has reached a place inside that beyond that good and bad, there's still a contentment. Right? And we see this in like neuroscience. Right? We see that when we actually have compassion in times of, of um, adverse conditions, that even though we're in a very stressful condition, if we're actually working out of service and compassion, oxytocin is released. And oxytocin uh, is responsible for bravery and courage. And this actually could allow this sense of contentment and, and hopefulness can arise within us, even though the situation itself can be very traumatic. Right? So it's kind of this inner abode of like calmness, even though we're actively working passionately to do right, what's right and what's good. I have a, another story of Sharon Salzberg. Um, I'll let you okay. say yeah. Sharon Salzberg got mugged in India, and um, and she. You know, she ran away, she got away, but she went back into her and told her teacher, like, I just got mugged. And he says, well, did you hit him? You know, and she says, well, no, that's violent. And he says, violent? He says, but you're taking care of, like, his karma and your karma and, you know, protecting yourself and self-compassion. And you could do that with compassion. But, you know, if you're being mugged, then you hit, right? So this is like... So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater like, oh, I'm just practicing loving kindness. It's a very dynamic practice, right? And we use our wisdom to know what's right and what's wrong. So absolutely. So absolutely, this is not numbing out and it's not detachment. Unattachment. Not detachment. And it can feel confusing at some times. But we're actually moving into it and actually instead of moving into our story of it, actually being with the emotion, for example, being with it in its actual essence, authentically. 
I might share um, a practice for me, because I've always felt um, the same sort of dilemma that you bring up, because it feels like acceptance is sort of equal to complacency. And um, so, you know, everything that you just said really supports um, that not being true. Um, and one of the things that I, I feel in my own life is when I meditate and I go down to this deeper place, um, I'm more, instead of reactive, I'm more responsive. And I still get that I have my, for whatever reasons, pollen, this personality, I have my particular path on this planet. And what stirs me to respond, then I shall. But that's different than when I'm reacting, you know, which is coming from a different place. So that's how I, how I work it through myself. Yeah. Of still being very active and engaged. Um, but not re not reactive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one reason why I wanted to chat about this today is just for that very reason is is where where does resilience come from? Because this empathic type of conditioning that a lot of I think us have, like as meditators and those drawn um, to these types of things, that we're very empathic. We have. We really feel the needs of others. Um, and as a lifetime caregiver, uh, myself, I've really had to deal with, uh, which I've known that I've realized the difference between in compassion fatigue and empath fatigue. Mm -hmm. And then and the realizing that feeling the, and being sensitive doesn't mean that I need to follow those sensitivities into negative states, mm -hmm. but I can react in a compassionate way. And compassion is actually very satisfying. It's very satisfying for the, for the mind, you know, for the spirit. But just this feeling can sometimes move into hopelessness, and we want hopefulness, and we want action and perseverance <coughs> as we go through it. Um, yeah. Just thinking, you know, just in terms of compassionate action, and if we really look at all things being equal, um, violence is violence, whether you're engaging it internally towards yourself or towards other people. And so sometimes I think we can mistake the meditation practice as being very passive and not engaged. Mm -hmm. um, I had an experience once I was on a three day retreat with uh, Gina Sharp, who was leading it, and um, we did an extended meta which uh, if anyone's ever done is um, it was, a, it was a couple hours of just the meta and just the meta towards the self and mm -hmm. I think um, you know one of the, the things that came out of it for me was a realization of the violence towards the self mm -hmm. and why sometimes the practice starts there mm -hmm. uh, um, it was incredibly painful but the realizing you know we're so engaged in wanting to do things externally mm -hmm. but what are we doing here um, and so you know I, I I've really taken that to heart now and when I sit that this isn't from that perspective, that's not passive at all. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much that we're releasing in that action of compassion and in that action of awareness mm -hmm. and just letting let the letting go of that inner violence. And so, mm -hmm. I think it's all things being equal. You know, that mm -hmm. it's all action from that 
way, and I like to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. I said, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Linda, 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 Karen, go ahead. Linda. Um, my mother, uh, 87, uh, yesterday, she had a cold, but she takes care of herself. She uh, told me she was going to be walking with her temple and some other uh, volunteers to the Islamic Center to show support for some of the disturbances they've had. Mm -hmm. and, um, there was this part of me as I'm listening, thinking, uh, it was, I was like in here, remembering a younger Linda would be rabble rousing. But this Linda is like seeing her do this and so grateful she's doing it and appreciative of that, but knowing this isn't my place. I had a gathering last night, another woman, very driven about the country <coughs> and uh, firmly decided I will march in Washington. I'm going there on the 21st. And I'm like, I am so thrilled you're doing that. And I felt great joy supporting her. I support you. But I'm seeing this. I don't even know who this is because this is not who I used to be. But I'm loving being part of it without having to jump. Thank you. And one more. Oh, and this is not as, as usually personal as all of you share, but um, mm. so there's, there's actually a toy break to your attention that there's a brand new book out called Against Empathy, mm -hmm. the what? call for rational compassion. And the whole thing is that he's a neuroscientist, Paul Bloom is a neuroscientist, who's look, who they now can, um, they've been able to create studies to show the difference between empathy in the brain mm. and how empathy actually tends to lead to immoral actions mm. versus compassion, which leads to moral, ethical mm. kind of action and what the difference of those is. And so within the field of those of us who are in meditation, it's kind of an interesting um, um, Neuro, yeah, confirmation of exactly the exact words that you said. That empathy does tend to lead to burnout, but it also leads to narrow, prejudicial mm. kinds of actions versus mm -hmm. compassion, like more distance, kind yeah. of stance of loving kindness, and how all the practices that we do in terms of loving kindness meditation creates compassion, which is a completely different emotion on a, on a neural level. So it's just a really interesting book that just published a couple weeks ago. Thank you. And what's the title again? Against Empathy. Okay. Bad empathy. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Against love and compassion. Yeah. Whatever. That's great. Well, I, Thank you. Oh, sorry. I, I think what it is is that we mistake, we mistake our empathy uh, with what we're just feeling in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 coming back to like saying we all have the power to be empathetic to everyone in the world, you know, if we just sort of strip out the, um, you know, the get out of our some thoughts, right? In mm -hmm. our basic form, we feel 
at one with everything, but a lot of times if we're not there yet, we project our mm. own feelings onto others. So we think right. we might be feeling your pain, mm. but really what we're feeling is something maybe not mm -hmm. truly. Right, right. Yours, right? <clears throat> so it's, it's the development of, of Sila, right? The mm -hmm. ethics and, and wisdom. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, can we just for a moment unpack the difference between empathy and compassion? I think, I mean, they're so, in my opinion, like so closely connected. I mean, compassion, I always have felt there's a, there's a close um, form of action connected compassion, and it's <coughs> compassion, but not necessarily. So what's the difference? I'll have to do it like in one minute because we're actually <laughs> over and I want to do a little announcement and then get, but um, so it, empath is the act of feelings. So empathic is being empath is to, to feel the suffering like of others, to feel that. Compassion is the want to release the suffering of others. So feeling it gives rise to compassion. So empath, so empathic feelings and I'm sure there's other definitions, but I'm just going to use that one for now, right? Is that connection of like, okay, I feel that. Wishing for the, for the happiness or that suffering to be dissolved, that's compassion. So it's just like, what's our response to our own feelings? We could have an aversion. So let's say we're suffering from sadness. So one, one way is to have an aversion to that sadness. So that's just a feeling. So that's, you're sensitive to it, right? That's empathic. You're sensitive to that feeling. Could be for others, what, what not, but just to use that as an example. So there you could say, oh man, I just don't want to be sad anymore, I'm done with it. Or you could say, hello dear one, you're suffering, I'm here for you. You see, so that's a, what you do with that, those feelings that you're sensitive to is the difference. It could lead down the road of like, you know, when we, when we feel a lot of hurt and let's say somebody's sick and you start yelling at the doctor, Fix my child, because you're hurting, because they're hurting. Mm -hmm. Fix my child, they're, I'm hurting because they're hurting, you see? Right. That could turn into anger so quickly. Yeah, compassion, wishing for everyone's happiness, you know, and less suffering. Um, okay, so sorry, we have to just wrap it up. I want to respect everyone's time. Um, You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.